This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Joe Bryan sits in his cell. He's been arrested and charged with murdering his wife, Mickey Bryan. He and his defense team have spent hundreds of hours asking and answering questions so they can fully flesh out what their defensive strategy will be. You know, they're quizzing me every day at the, at the law firm. Well, what about so-and-so or what about, you know, whatever it is we were talking about. And I'm getting more frustrated every day with what's going on. And then they finally told me, hey, look, we're defending you and we believe in you. We don't believe you killed Mickey. And that meant a lot for me to hear that from them. And they told me if they thought that I had killed Mickey, they would have told me they thought so. They said, we, don't, we do not believe you did. Nothing indicates that you did it. Now, they're going to say all these kind of things at your trials to try to convince the jury that you did it. They know the story the prosecution will tell of how a rage-filled husband drove through the middle of a stormy night to murder his wife in cold blood. And they know they'll try and break down Joe's character from beloved high school principal to a man with a closeted life that would kill to keep it a secret. Interestingly enough, Mickey's family, particularly her brother Charlie Blue, will bring another added layer into the mix. Similar to when he hired a special investigator to help police investigate, Charlie also bankrolls a special prosecutor to aid in putting Joe behind bars. Charlie Blue is the one who hires and pays for Gary Llewellyn, the special prosecutor. Leslie Draffin is a journalist and evening news anchor at KCEN in Temple, Texas. Small counties like Bosque County is, it is not uncommon for the DA to have help with an investigation in the form of a special prosecutor. But the way the law goes, the DA still has to have control of the case. And that's a lot of question. That's a lot of the question about what all happened because Gary Llewellyn was having his own interviews with witnesses, kind of conducting his own separate investigation while McMullen, the DA, was doing his thing. So it's separate but together when you look at some of this stuff. So Llewellyn comes in and throughout throughout Joe Bryan's two trials in 86 and 89, it is well documented that Llewellyn is paid by the victim's family. The jury knows that. And what does that say? I mean, the victim's family paid for this person to come in to prosecute the victim's husband. So that is kind of what Gary Llewellyn's thing is all about. He's the one who, like I said, really pushes that gay agenda that Joe is just this closeted homosexual in 1985, small town Texas, when gay sex is still illegal. And it's in the midst of the AIDS pandemic at that point where everybody's freaking out. So you've got this complete just uh, taking apart of Joe Bryan's reputation from that standpoint, even though they not they never really introduced that as a motive at the trial. They just say it a lot. Joe's main concern is defending himself in this murder trial. And while he has the support of his closest friends and family, the rest of his tightly knit world begins to unravel around him. He loses his job, and many members of his longtime church no longer want him to be a part of it. So I think Joe, leading up to the first trial, loses it, probably just about everything. I mean, his family, his mother is still around. His friends are there. But even his friends are getting questioned by Gary Llewellyn about his relationship to them. There are several things written out in Llewellyn's notes, question so-and-so about his relationship with Joe, question 
um, ex-wife regarding his sexual preferences. Questioned friends about whether or not he might have had a secret relationship with their their husbands. So, I mean, they really are taking this guy down. As the trial begins, Joe and his defense know that there are two key pieces of evidence that the prosecution will focus on. The first is the bloodstained flashlight. The big parts about the trial are the flashlight and Robert Thorman. I mean, that really is the main thing that linked Joe as a suspect, and it's truly what they focus on most about during the trial. So Robert Thorman... He comes, and he is the expert that is used both in the 86 trial and the 89 trial. Um, His uh, whole thing is that, you know, Joe was holding the flashlight when he shot Mickey because this is the splashback, and there were these little blue fragments that, although you couldn't really see with the naked eye on the flashlight, were also on Mickey. And so what that was, it was some type of a buckshot particle from the type of bullet that was in the gun that was on Mickey because you could see in the autopsy report the little blue fragments that were on Mickey and that was why I guess they really linked the blood on the flashlight with the killer because they they thought, all right, blood on the flashlight with these little blue specks, also blue specks on Mickey. So that was really, I think, the biggest part of the the trial at that point. The second piece of evidence is the discarded underwear that the prosecution says was found in the bedroom trash can. The underwear situation, they they brought that up in some pretty disgusting ways, I think. Um, they used it to argue that that whoever killed Mickey was such a pervert that they masturbated after killing her. Um, that was mentioned that it was moist, so it had to have been deposited really recently so it had to have been who was ever whoever was there who killed her as the trial progressed i learned that um hey, these people are up there lying on the witness stand yeah, they were saying things that were not true and you also have to remember too that in small town america particularly with elected officials and policing agencies uh, people want to believe that they're honest and that they're They've got the benefit, best benefits, you know, for the people in the community. And I learned that's not so. So in, it, this can happen to anybody in America. You can be caught up in a situation where someone's angry with you or you know, with Mickey or whatever the circumstances were that caused all this nightmare. And they'll use every opportunity they can to slam dunk you and just lie like a son of a gun and... People believe that stuff because they want to believe that their law enforcement agencies are honest. And I I learned from experience they're not. With evidence presented, the prosecution proceeds to explain their overall theory of how Joe murdered his wife. And the thing they asked the jury to believe is that, you know, Joe talked to Mickey at 9.15 because that's the phone records from the Austin Hotel. He hangs up the phone, drives 120 miles in the pouring rain, even though he has an eyesight problem that makes driving at night really difficult. He murders Mickey. He cleans it up, disposes of the gun, jewelry, gets back in the car, drives back to Austin, and is there in the time it would take to get to the meeting in the morning with no witnesses and proof that the mileage on the car would only have been one trip. I'm 112 miles away. We even proved the mileage on my car and the gasoline. So, you 
They couldn't get me there. And if I did, because what did I drive if I didn't drive my own car? My car's parked out right there at the front of the hotel. And the valets, you know, were telling everybody that car never moved that night. It was there all night long. So they're asking that of the jury to believe. And I guess in the end, the jury does believe it. Guilty. Joe shares his thoughts he had the moment he heard that word. Unbelief, shock, and thinking, how could they do this? How could they do this? They had nothing there that says that I did. They couldn't get me there. Uh, I just was in just shocking. Um, he is found guilty in 86. He is in jail for about a year and a half. And uh, that sentence was reversed because of there was an error in the court proceedings. And then in 89, he goes back to trial, is again found guilty, and was sentenced to 99 years. Of course, they took me from the courthouse straight to the jail after my conviction. Um, I was emotionally distraught, very angry, um, mad at God. Uh, I thought, how could you let this happen? And I was there in the jail several days, and then they took me to Waco because the TDC bus would be coming by there. The TDC is the Texas Department of Corrections. When we got to the Waco jail the day before I left to go to prison, the one of the jailers was the former student there at the high school who had been in trouble before, and I'd helped him. And... He was concerned for my well-being, and he went, and it was late when we got there, and I had eaten, and he asked me what I would like to eat, and I said, whatever y'all have here, he said, well, we don't have anything here, we've already fed. So he says, I know what you used to get at the Dairy Queen, I'll just go get you something. And he came back with a bacon cheeseburger and french fries and a big Dr. Pepper for me that he paid for with his own money. TDC came by with their bus to take us to Huntsville. Uh, I'm in the back seat in view of everybody, and of course the news media is there, and they're taking pictures, and shame, embarrassment, anger, all those thoughts go through your mind. You don't know what prison is going to be like. You've heard all kinds of stories all of your life. When we got to the Diagnostic Center, which is now the Joe Bird unit, well, when I, you know, they he doused us down to delice us, so to speak, and shaved our heads. We went to sales, and then they started in with the battery of tests that we had to take, IQ test, education test, personality test, all that stuff, blood test. Still, I'm thinking, you know, I just can't believe this. Joe's angry at what's happened to him and his life, but he decides... He won't take it out on the prison staff and guards. It's not TDC's fault that I was in prison. There's no reason for me to be hateful or disrespectful to the staff or cause problems or fight with them. So I thought, well, I'm just going to be me. And that's what I've done all through the years. I've just been me. And thankfully, I never really had any serious physical problems or altercations. Yes, I had a couple of fights. that's part of the game, and once you prove yourself, you know, they leave you alone. But I tried to, my grandparents and my, my parents used to tell us, remember, everything you say and do represents who you are and represents this family. And I've always lived that way. Everything I say and do represents who I am and represents my family. 
So even in prison, I never let that environment change who I am. And I used to have people tell me, you know, you've never let prison change who you are or your manners or anything at all. And I would say thank you um, because who I am is important to me. And I don't have, that's all I have left is just who I am. Over the next several months, Joe and his legal team appealed to get new trials and overturn his guilty verdict. By 1991, they exhaust all of their chances at doing so. Years in prison turned to decades. In 2012, after 25 years of incarceration, a group of journalists, retired investigators, and lawyers begin to take an interest in Joe Bryan and his claim of innocence. I'll start with Leon Smith Clifton. Because without Leon, we would not have had much information. Through his personal investigation for 30-something years, um, he cut off many years of research we would have had to have done because he already had the answers. He'd already done investigative reporting to it. And then when Pam Koloff took an interest in my case and she got involved with us, uh, and for a year, she and I met numerous times, was able to dig information out that we'd never been able to get. But she really was the key through the Innocence Project information to waking up America to what had happened to me. I've been blessed tremendously through that. And it was a very difficult time to get the Innocence Project to even take my case because for many years, I tried to get them to do it. And they're just overwhelmed with so many people uh, needing help. In 2018, with Joe having served 32 years in prison, the Texas court system allows a new evidentiary hearing to take place. Legal, forensic, and investigative experts, as well as journalists from all over, descend on the little town of Comanche, Texas. The most interesting three days of my life and also so frustrating. Joe's defense team has some expert for almost every single part of the evidence against Joe. They have their own expert in bloodstain pattern analyst. They have their own law professors. And they pick apart the circumstantial evidence that was used to make Joe the suspect and to convict him. The flashlight, the bloodstain pattern analyst's testimony, and the semen. Jesse Freud, whose story is incredible, she basically picked up on this Joe Bryan case when she was a law student at Baylor. She had been pressing for years to get the DNA test done because they had not done this. In 1985, the closest they could get to forensic evidence testing was blood typing. And they did blood type the flashlight and said it had type O blood, which was Mickey's blood type. That was what they knew in 85. They couldn't do DNA testing, anything like that. So she's pushing for all of this DNA testing to happen. At the evidentiary hearing, they basically come out and say, the flashlight, it might not have blood on it at all. The tests are inconclusive. And the DNA profile is so small that they can't even quantify it enough to get a DNA profile. Then the bloodstain pattern analyst, his report was dissected by experts out of the Houston area. There were so many pieces of his report that they found to be flawed. And even from the early 2000s, 2010s, Bloodstain pattern analyst is junk science at this point. I mean, it's really never used in court these days because it's really flawed and it's very opinion-based. And then this whole semen underwear thing, well, it's also not semen because no sperm was seen in the test at all. And if there aren't sperm, 
sperm heads seen in the test, then they cannot say that it's semen. So the main pieces of forensic evidence that were used to convict Joe Bryan, the flashlight, the bloodstain pattern analyst's testimony, and the semen on the underwear are basically all picked apart in the evidentiary hearing. On the final day of the hearing, Joe's team drops the biggest bombshell against the original prosecution's case. Jesse Freud, Joe's attorney, presents this letter from Robert Thorman. Robert Thorman has seen all the coverage of the evidentiary hearing, seen the other experts pick apart his testimony and say, you know what? I might have made some mistakes back in the 80s. So he, he himself is saying, I might have gotten it wrong. And he also is in an affidavit from 2015 saying, well, if it's not blood on the flashlight, well, then all of what I said is wrong. If it's not blood, if the flashlight doesn't have blood on it, because those tests are inconclusive, and if the bloodstain pattern analyst himself has said, I might have made some mistakes, then you have to at least relook at those and at most completely throw them out. And if you throw them out, then there's no evidence against Joe. So after 35 years, who killed Mickey? Who killed Mickey? According to Joe Bryan, there is at least one prevailing theory. And we have to once again look back at 1985 to better understand it. In 1985, four months before Mickey was murdered, a 17-year-old girl named Judy Whitley was murdered. Judy is killed in June. She is found naked, duct taped across her mouth, and she had ligature marks on her wrists that kind of were next to a tree. So they thought she was probably tied to this tree, she was raped, and she died of suffocation. So that case remained totally unsolved until 1996. That's when a former Clifton police officer who had been on the force in 85, he committed suicide. His name was Dennis Dunlap. After that, the police start investigating his death and a couple weird things pop up. One of Dennis's ex-wives said that he had told her he was with Mickey the night Mickey died. They had been dating, and he took her back to the house, and he dropped her off. Um, There's also this pair of boots that they find in Dennis Dunlap's hotel room where he hung himself. A very, very specific pair of boots. Now, I don't have the description in front of me, but there are, uh, there's an affidavit from the prison chaplain, Carol Pickett, of the Huntsville unit where Joe was for pretty much his entire incarceration. He gets called about a person who was found having committed suicide, maybe had links to the Joe Bryan case. Can he ask Joe to describe a certain pair of boots that might have belonged to him? It's the exact pair of boots. I think there was like some kind of an initial in the in the boot. And the other thing is Dennis Dunlap was this really shady dude. In the habeas corpus, the writ of habeas corpus, there is a whole portion about him possibly running prostitutes, having done drug deals with evidence. Um, Very, very shady. And so he had only been on the police force for less than a year when Judy Whitley was murdered. Come to find out, he had dated Judy's older sister. It's just weird because he was a suspect in Judy Whitley's, but the police, his chief, kind of was like, just get out of here. Just go. Not like, I'm going to investigate you, just get out of here. So he had left the department between Judy's death and Mickey's death, but he was around, and he was still doing shady stuff. Uh, He was the womanizer extraordinaire, and of course, Mickey and I had no problems, so I never had a reason to mistrust her, but he had a history of 
chasing women around and trying to get them interested in him. Um, several women testified about that during the evidentiary hearings. Um, I don't know why he would have singled Mickey out, but he did admit to his wife that she testified under oath that he told her he was with Mickey the night she was killed. And see, what they didn't tell us is that Mickey had defense wounds on her body. And we didn't know that for almost 30 years. Uh, they, they just kept that information from us. See, the night they arrested me and we got to the jail at Meridian, they stripped me and took pictures of my body. And I guess, be looking back, and I didn't understand it then, they were looking for bruises or cuts and scrapes on me because evidently Mickey struggled with whoever killed her. So they were looking for bruises or scratches on me, and I had none. So they just never mentioned it. And I didn't put all that together until later on. We have no DNA evidence that says Dennis did it. But he admitted to his wife that he was there with Mickey the night she was killed. So evidently, he wanted some type of relationship with her, and she wasn't interested. And that, that's the only thing I can come up with on that because she and I had no problems that I'm aware of. And Mickey was the kind of person, that, and we were both totally honest with each other about everything. So Joe's hearing concludes, and no new recommendations are given whether he should be freed or remain in prison. That's very frustrating because they're totally in denial. They don't want to admit that they made a real big mistake. They don't want to admit that Multiple people lied on the witness stand. They don't want to admit that they manipulated evidence to get me convicted. Because all this is going to affect their careers and their reputations. And just being real factual, they don't give one hoot about my career or my, my reputation or my life. All they care about is themselves. And that's really sad that our society is such that people are not wanting the truth. I don't understand it. Two years go by, and in early 2020, Joe has a parole hearing. In March, he hears back. Uh, I had called my brother and asked him if they'd heard anything yet. Well, no, they hadn't. So about two and a half hours later, I thought, well, this was about 4.30 in the afternoon, and I thought, I'll try James again and see if they've heard anything. And he had just learned 30 minutes prior to that that I'd made parole. And I turned, and there were about 10 guys in the day room there where I was. And I said, yes, <laughs> jumped up and down. And it was a wonderful moment. Joe recalls the moment he stepped off of the prison grounds. Well, I'd seen many, many, many men do that on that unit. And my cell used to be, years before that, on the side where you could overlook the wall there at the hospital unit and I could see family members hugging their family and it was always rejoicing that somebody at least was getting out and I thought I'm not going to believe this is happening until I'm actually outside these walls and my family and attorneys and other friends were there and it's just a priceless moment. Joe Bryan is out of prison, but he remains a convicted murderer. Being out isn't good enough. 
He wants his name cleared. Well, personally, I want to, I want the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to overturn the conviction and remand it back to the lower court. My first preference would be that they find me actual innocent. We don't have to go through that part again. But if they overturn it and remand it back to the court, they no longer have anything to use against me because all the evidence has been proven false. So they've had a lot of pressure put on them by the legal community to straighten out their fiasco. For Leslie, she still wants to get justice for Mickey. For me and for anybody else who's read the case or covered the case, and if you're even a little bit interested in the case, you truly want to get justice for Mickey because who killed her? I really can't sit here and say that I think Joe did. Joe Bryan is now in his late 70s, still on a mission to clear his name. And after having spent almost half of his life behind bars, his life today is very different. I love being at home here. I've left the house once since the 31st of March. And I don't worry about going anywhere. Everyone here takes care of what needs I have. Uh, I'm just enjoying the moment and the relaxation of knowing I'm not in prison and enjoying the love of my family. It's indescribable. I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Jessica Knoll. Uh, Spencer, again, you did a lot of the research and actually talked to Joe Bryan for the last two episodes. Final thoughts coming out of all this? I mean, we hear a lot from Joe Bryan this week, uh, a convicted killer, um, but out today and still trying to clear his name. Yeah. And talking with Joe, you know, he is a soft-spoken guy. Um, He is has very strong faith. And that is the thing that he credits through getting him through this entire ordeal is his faith. Um, He uh, was very angry with God in the beginning. And then through him getting connected with a church group in prison, he, he continued on his, his journey there. And uh, he really does not hold a lot of anger in my just 90 minute talking with him did not strike me as someone that holds a lot of anger. He has uh, seemingly forgiven. And one of the things that really struck me in in this second episode of his story is that he says prison, he wouldn't allow prison to change him. And um, regardless of innocence or guilt, that's pretty remarkable because it's, you know, in, in the stories that we do, um, prison is a really harsh reality. And it, it it does change the core of people, and it doesn't seem like that is the case. And and in fact, it sounds like his faith is even stronger now than it was back then. Um, I did want to ask you if you know where his case with the Innocence Project is. I know they have a lot of cases where they are working with folks who are uh, currently inside prison, He's been released on parole, so he is no longer in prison, but he yet still wants to clear his name. Um, and so I was wondering, do we know where that is in the process? Because I know that can be um, years and years of paperwork and and um, work on the Innocence Project side. Yeah, I know that he has multiple teams uh, that defend him. He has his own defense team that is headed by Jesse Freud. Uh, but in just speaking with her a little bit, uh, she credits his parole attorneys for, you know, actually getting him out of prison. And I know that the Innocence Project 
is continuing to review his case. He, Joe, mentioned that they will be really tackling this soon, uh, looking reviewing his case and seeing if they can move forward legally. But I'm not totally sure uh, if, you know, by the time he also is in failing health, he is in self-admitted failing health. So uh, they need to move quickly if they're going to do that. Well, to wrap it up, Spencer, I mean, we spend a lot of time in, in both episodes hearing from Joe Bryan. And, you know, we, we normally wouldn't spend that much time with someone who is convicted of a, a terrible crime like this. But it's a really compelling story, and there seems like there might be an argument to be made, but uh, maybe more to come on this down the road. Yeah, it is a compelling story, Will, and I think that there probably will be updates in the future. But as far as updates go now, we do have an update from a previous episode uh, on Barbara Blatnick. Jessica, can you tell us about that? Yeah, we did a story, uh, one of our episodes called New Hope for Barbara Blatnick uh, back in October She had been brutally attacked. She was raped, beaten, stabbed, and strangled, and left for dead uh, on a country road. And this is out of Cleveland, Ohio, Garfield Heights more specifically. She was 17 years old, and this was December 19th, 1987. We had spoken to Phil Trexler with WKYC in Cleveland, um, who had covered a lot of her story. Barbara was known to all her friends as uh, Barbie, and the case had actually gotten picked up by a nonprofit group called the Porchlight Project, which had just started, I believe, last year or or not too long ago. They were sending her DNA. There was DNA evidence under nine of her nails, Um, There was skin from her attacker. And so in 1987, they didn't have the resources or the the, uh, forensics to test that. And now they do. So the nonprofit had sent her DNA to some experts in California who had broken the Golden State Killer case last year with some similar DNA. And we had spoken also to Donna uh, Zanith, who is her older sister, and she was working with the Porchlight Project. So the long story short is that this group in California uh, was able to test that DNA. Colleen Fitzpatrick and her team at Identifinders International were able to get a hit. And last uh, earlier this week, the Cuyahoga Falls police announced that they had made an arrest, uh, 67-year-old James Zastnick of Cleveland, and they arrested him for Barbara's murder. That's all the information we have at this moment, and we'll bring you more updates as, as they, they come, but it is a great outcome to a horrific, horrific situation and a, and a sad, sad case. All right, Jessica, you have a story for us next week you're working on, right? Yeah, Will. So next week we're going to be talking to a reporter in Seattle who th- this case actually takes a weird twist because normally the reporter is not part of the story. And in this case, the extremist group that is involved in the case that he's investigating targets him and his family. All right, Jessica, thanks very much. We look forward to that story next week. A reminder to all of our True Crime Chronicles listeners, our new podcast, Selena, A Star Dies in Texas, uh, launched just last week, and the first two episodes are available to listen to wherever you listen to podcasts. Spencer, 
What can people do? If you like this episode uh, and if you like True Crime Chronicles, please give us a like and subscribe to us and tell your friends and family about this series. All right. Thanks, Spencer. Jessica, where can people learn more about Vault Studios and True Crime Chronicles? We are on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault where you and others that are in the group can talk about this case as well as others that you think we should be talking about. All right. Thanks, Jessica Knoll and Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. We'll be back next week.